Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm super excited to welcome Dr. Megan Rohde onto the podcast today. I've had the pleasure of knowing Megan for about two, two and a half years now. I met her when I was on a clinical out in Arizona, and she was very much a early influence onto my entire physical therapy journey thus far. She is a absolute savage alpha individual, and you're going to hear a lot about that in the episode today. But you're also going to hear about another side as well. And, you know, ultimately, a lot of us, myself included, we like to kind of come off as just for lack of a better way to put it, an absolute badass. Uh, But sometimes we struggle with things and sometimes we go through difficult times. And ultimately, those are the things that make us better and move the needle of life forward. So we kind of dive into a lot of those different points and stories along that journey today. So I know you're going to love this episode. I highly recommend you check out Megan's Instagram account at it depends DPT. And I also recommend you follow her other Instagram account at Fortis Matrum, Fortis Matrum, uh, for all of the amazing stuff that she's continuing to do. Enjoy the episode. Megan, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to finally get you on the show. It has yeah. been years in the making here. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So for people who might not be familiar with you and all the incredible things that you've done, you know, across your career, would you mind filling them in a little bit about who Megan Rohde is? Oh, goodness. Well, um, I guess first off, I'm a wife and a mom. Um, So I have my, I call them my two forests. So my husband and my son are both named Forrest. Um, Forrest and I have been married this summer will be seven years or this fall will be seven years. We've been together for 10. Um, and then our son is five. Um, and then now I am a program director, um, in a PT program. I work for Franklin Pierce university. I've been with them since 2014. Um, prior to that, I was just a good old fashioned orthopedic and sports PT dabbled a little bit with some high level athletes, um, did quite a bit with female athletes, pregnancy, postpartum, Um, and then recently I would say over the last, I don't know, maybe five ish years, um, I've gotten more into, uh, trauma informed care and now I'm kind of branching out into trauma informed education, um, because I think our students come in with, with a bunch of junk that we're not prepared really to, to handle. So, um, I love CrossFit. I love Olympic weightlifting. Um, I'm actually coaching today, so I don't know if you do video with this, but I've got on my CrossFit Sahegan shirt to go coach. Um, and yeah, I've been doing CrossFit since 2011 um, and Olympic weightlifting actually since I was 13. So uh, yeah, that's pretty much pretty much me. I love to be outside. I love to get my feet in the grass. Um, we were just talking about camping and 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 glamping across the country and so anything to do outside, but I also am a city girl at heart. So my husband <laughs> has to take me into Boston at least once a month so I can get my city fix. <laughs> there you go. And, <laughs> you know, I think you really just scratched the surface there too, Megan, because you have accomplished so much and done so many different things, whether you look at it from a professional lens or a personal lens. Um, and really what you've done is incredible Um, Just to stop and think about some of the athletes that you've mentioned that you've worked with in the past, the career that you've built for yourself. I think you've got, what, two or three doctorate degrees, technically? Uh, I have have two. I've got uh, the entry-level DPT that I actually had to get afterwards because I'm old enough that uh, when I graduated, it was still a master's level. So I went went back, 
um, in 2010 and got my transitional DPT um, from the University of Montana. That was an awesome program uh, with some really big names um, in NPT associated with it. Um, so it was, it really kind of was a springboard. And then when I joined Franklin Pierce, I wish I'd kind of negotiated this a little bit better. They said I needed to get a terminal degree. So meaning a PhD or a DSI or EDD or something like that. Um, and I was like, cool. Well, I, you know, I thought I'd been, I would do that anyway. And so I just went off and did it. And, you know, unless President Biden and the Supreme Court really get their shit together, I got to start paying for that in the next couple <laughs> months. So, um, so yeah, I finished my PhD in human and sport performance uh, in 2020. I actually defended uh, my dissertation on March 20th second of 2020 in Portland, uh, Oregon. And I was on a plane that night back home to Phoenix. And sure enough, two days later, I was sick. I was the sickest I've ever been in my life. Uh, and then two weeks later, the world shut down. So, uh, I remember I was sitting next to a lady on the plane and she was coughing and I was like, I bet she's got whatever this COVID thing is. And I'm probably going to get really sick and sure as shit. I was so sick. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, that's where those two doctoral degrees came from. <laughs> Impeccable timing as always. Impeccable timing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think we've talked in the past. I know I mentioned it when I was working with uh, John Hasdevac there in the past, you know, I've had the privilege of getting to know you a little bit in person and see how you work in a clinic on a functional, like day-to-day -day type thing. Uh, and, you know, I still hold true to my statement that you're probably the most alpha savage, whatever term you want to throw at it. <laughs> PT that I've ever met and worked with in the past. Uh, but, you know, I can't help but wonder, Megan, there's probably another side to that. You probably weren't mm -hmm. always the fearless, confident, I'm going to do this no. and it's going to work kind of person uh, that I came to know you to be. Absolutely. I was not like that. When I first graduated from PT school, um, my first job was with Concentra Medical Centers and uh, I was... I took the job because they paid the best and I was really nervous about my student loans. Um, for context to new grads that might be listening, my starting salary was $55,000 a year. So, you know, we've, we've gotten a little bit better, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, for, for people who don't know about Concentra, Concentra is primarily um, occupational medicine. And so you have a schedule, but then you also have walk-ins that you'll take um, you know, for people who get brought in with injuries and stuff like that. And in Oklahoma, I graduated from the University of Oklahoma, uh, fantastic PT program. Um, I still in touch with some of my professors there. Absolutely love it. Um, so in Oklahoma, you can work as a graduate PT under a PT's license. Um, and they just have to co-sign your notes, kind of like, you know, when you're a student. And so the day I passed my board exam, um, I went to work and I was like, sweet, I get to do this on my own. And my first patient that I saw had no social security number, did not speak a lick of English and had acute low back pain. And I was like, oh shit, I have no idea what to do. I don't speak Spanish. Um, at that point in time, I was terrible at spine. Like give me anything extremity, but spine really freaked me out. And this guy is in like nine out of 10 pain, like almost in tears, can't move. And I was like, I don't, e I don't even know what to do. You mean to tell and me school didn't prepare you for that, Megan? 
Uh, no, no, it did not. I'm, I'm shocker. Wow. I know. Shocker. Um, so I went and got my boss who's, who was fluent in Spanish and she was, she was wonderful. She was so great. Um, and she came over and translated for me and I just, I just did my best and the guy's pain didn't change. And I think he was actually crying as he left. And as soon as he walked out of the clinic, I started crying because I felt like such a failure. And she was like, Hey, you just treated your first patient 100% totally by yourself. Like all she did was, was be my interpreter, but the clinical decision-making was all on my own. And I was like, huh, no kidding. Yeah, I guess I just did that. So, um, and he, he, you know, Concentra's model was that if, if people got hurt that day, they would come to PT three days in a row and then they'd go see the physician again. And so he came in the next two days, he taught me some Spanish. The next day he came in, he felt better. Uh, I ended up seeing him for about a month and it really helped my confidence. I didn't, you know, I didn't make him necessarily worse. I didn't make him better. So that was a hard pill to swallow, um, but it was okay. And so I just kind of kept on with that. And there were, I lasted with Concentra maybe six months. Um, and then I switched over to Health South um, before, before they went under. Um, and I, I think my evolution, I can really attribute to the mentorship that I had. Um, you know, my boss at Concentra was wonderful. And then the people I worked with, with Health South were really wonderful too. Um, and then about three years after that, I had a great opportunity to go and work for Cleveland Clinic. And that really just changed, that changed everything. Um, and I was terrified there too, because if you're, if you're working for a hospital system like that, um, you know, typically you are seeing people eventually you'll end up seeing people who have tried everything. Like they've, they've seen the PTs, they've done chiropractic care, they've seen the surgeons and they still aren't getting any better. And you're like the last resort. And that's a lot of pressure. Um, and then, you know, we did do some things with, uh, the professional sports in Cleveland. And so sometimes those guys would come in. Um, I remember, the first time I worked with a professional athlete, I was terrified. And my, one of my friends said, is he's, he's just another person. Like he's got a lot of money. He's got a lot more money than we do, but he's just another person. And that made that perspective kind of made the difference. And so it was just, you know, one day at a time, just chip away, um, and, and try to learn and absorb as much as I could from everybody around me. Right, right. And, you know, it seems like you're kind of alluding to the fact that everyone had different perspectives on the same situation, right? So talk, going back to your example of the first patient you treated, right? Your uh, boss at the time thought you did a phenomenal job. And yeah. meanwhile, you're sitting there in tears, like, I just, I can't do right. this. I'm a total um, failure. Why did like, I can't do exactly. I can't do this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it's so easy. And so often we find ourselves getting caught up in the moment in a situation like that, looking at the immediate things that we just did or saw or whatever, and assuming the worst from that. Um, you know, yeah. we always assume that it was something we did or that we didn't do the right thing, or we reflect and we say, 
oh, you know, maybe I should have done this instead of that or whatever it is. Like maybe a PA mobbed this guy's spine and, you know, maybe you should have needled his paraspinals instead. I don't know. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, those are the only things that move our needle of life forward. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's something that you came to recognize very, very shortly after, especially with your work in the Cleveland Clinic, working with, you know, professional teams like the Cavaliers. I mean, plain and simple, if you can't develop the ability to look back at, you know, whatever you did that day and say, you know what, I might have sucked for five minutes today, but that's okay because now I'm going to get better next time and I'm going to learn from it and start to look at the brighter side of gray. I mean, that's what makes you so effective, in my opinion, is your ability to do that. Um, But for some reason, that whole memo is completely missed in today's day and age. It's uh, it's almost like we demonize failure and we settle for nothing short of perfection in all that we do. Um, And, you know, that that sparks a whole nother conversation of just the paradigm of perfection, right? Like what is perfect to me is not perfect to you. Um, so I, I like to say that things are always imperfectly perfect, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, my, the way I was brought up, um, my dad is a retired general in the army. Um, my mom is a retired psychologist. I'm an only child. So I was kind of screwed from the beginning, right? Uh, you know, high expectations, a little bit of psychoanalyzation, Um, and it wasn't, I don't think my parents really ever said it has to be perfect. They just, they really pushed me. And there are some times that I get really super frustrated about that because I think it contributed to a lot of the issues that I've worked through as an adult. But at the same time, I think about where I am and I don't think I would be here if they hadn't pushed me. Um, but perfectionism can really, really damage us because we, you know, like you said, we get this idea in our heads of what perfect is. And so especially, I'm going to, I'm in a soapbox for a minute. You can tell me. Go for it. Um, Go off. I think, I think for women, we have this societal perfection that just screws us from the get-go as kids. Now I was born in 1980. And so I grew up with Barbie dolls and skinny, you know, late eighties, early nineties models. I thought Kate Moss was like the most amazingly beautiful person growing up. My grandmother loves to shop and she used to bring me, um, I grew up, I grew up in Oklahoma. So kind of a Southern-ish way of, of living and um, she would bring me the Neiman Marcus catalogs every time she came to visit. And so I grew up seeing like these beautiful models and these beautiful clothes. And for those of you who have physically seen me, um, I am not built like that. And I started weightlifting when I was young. And so like this whole thigh gap thing, I never had a thigh gap. And I remember as a teenager looking at my friends who were cheerleaders or ran cross country or whatever. And they're these like skinny life, little girls. And I'm like, my dad used to say built like a brick shit house. <laughs> like, you know, you're not knocking me over <laughs> and, and I hated it. And so I would change the way that I, that I stood or the way that I dressed so that I could look like that because I thought that was perfect. And now at 42, it took 
years of CrossFit, years of therapy, having a baby and having a husband who thinks I'm just wonderful the way that I am to finally be at home in myself. And I still struggle with it. And so then I think that compounded with what we do to students in PT school really was a recipe for disaster. So if you think about lab practicals, there's a rubric you need to, you need to, you need to hit the marks. It needs to be perfect. Your hand placement can't be 10 degrees off. It's got to be right there, you know? Um, so you got three years of perfection in PT school, and then you go into the clinic and you got to do that. And, you know, patients are expecting a lot from you. So it's really easy to get into this like perfection way of thinking, um, only to find out once you've, you know, have the aha moment that, everybody's so damn worried about themselves. Like they actually don't care about you (laughs) and and whatever's going on. (laughs) So, um, and it's, I think, I think patients really would rather, rather than you be perfect. I think patients would rather you say, you know what, I'm not sure, but I will look it up and get back to you and then follow up after you look it up and get back to them. They would rather that than perfection. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, at the end of the day, I found that no one likes to know it all. Um, I don't care if we're talking about the school sense or the life sense. No one really likes the person who always has an answer for everything, no matter how ridiculous it is. Um, And I've found over the past year of, you know, my own life here that there's a lot that, you know, school preps you for, but there's so much that it doesn't. Um, And you getting stuck in those what the hell moments Um, What you do to answer them is really what I think defines your character and defines whether what others will view you as as far as a professional goes. Um, So, you know, if you get stuck in one of those moments, you just clearly kind of jabber on about some random answer like people can smell insecurity a mile away. Oh, for Um, sure. Whereas if you just kind of say, look, here's what I think I know. And I like the term think I know, because believe it or not, we don't know everything and not everyone agrees on everything i've seen you know world-renowned surgeons go back and forth over which graft to do for an acl reconstruction we've been doing that (laughs) procedure for decades and yet we can't all agree on what the best answer is um and that's okay so it's okay to say here's what i think and here's what i'm going to do about it you know you can research it i like to jump on the phone and just call other doctors and providers Mm -hmm. And kind of build in like a second opinion, for lack of a better way to put it. I mean, the sky is really the limit on what you can do in that situation. And ultimately, if you show someone that you care about them, uh, they're going to respect that. You know, I don't think anyone really uh, cares about how much you know until they know how much you care. I think that's like a cliche term or something like that. Theodore Roosevelt said that. Like he was, he was one of the. I mean, he had his flaws, but he he was one of the best presidents. And, and he, he coined that phrase, no one cares how much, you know, until they know how you make them feel. And I think that, you know, one of the things that you said a minute ago made me think about this in terms of perfection, you're talking about moving the needle. If you, if you look at like compounding your day, like over the period of a year, if in one day you move the needle 1%, and you do that every single day for 30 days, you've collectively moved the needle 30%. And if you do it every single day for a year, you've improved 365%. Yeah. 
And so I think people get so stuck on, you know, making these big changes that you don't actually have to do that. And that's where I think failure happens when, you know, think about it, like in, in reference to a diet or a nutrition plan, you know, people will say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to start my diet on Monday and I'm going to eliminate this food group, or I'm going to cut down to 1500 calories or, you know, whatever their thing is when maybe if they just started going for a walk for 15 minutes after dinner, that like, don't change the way you eat, just go for a walk and do that for a month. Okay, great. Now I have this habit and I've moved the needle 30%. Okay. Now I'm going to not have my glass of wine at night, which would be really sad for me to let go of. But, um, <laughs> you know, so, so little things. And I think as PTs and as students, I really, I really encourage students to think about that. Like you don't have to know everything every day. You just have to move the needle 1%, you know? So like my first year students, when they come in, our first term is 12 weeks long. They've got six credits of anatomy and six credits of kines. And it's like hell for them. It's so overwhelming. Well, just go home and like, look at something every day. Just spend a little bit of time with it every day. And don't forget time for you. And then just move that needle. And then, you know, over time, we see this really great improvement. So um, I think keeping it simple uh, really, really helps to do that. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, you know, you've mentioned, we've mentioned the concept of failure a few times here. And mm -hmm. as you were talking, you know, you brought up the point of, you know, it's okay to learn how to fail forward. Um, oh, but for sure. At yeah. least, at least from my own experience working with this population, I found that individuals that come from a military background have a very mm -hmm. difficult time with failure uh, because yep. most of the time in the military, Failure uh, of a mission or something along those lines usually means someone is not coming home. Um, yep. So failure is not an option there. And you mentioned that you grew up in a household where your father was, you know, a general in the army. So how did you go from, you know, a what I'm assuming to be a belief system of failure is not an option to the point now where you're able to fail forward and encourage others to do the same? Well, I think I, I think I have to be really. I have to give, uh, give credit to my dad, really. Um, it wasn't necessarily that failure wasn't an option. It was this ability to reflect and, and answer the question, honestly, did you do your best? And your best is what is going to change from one day to the next, right? You know, did I, did I sleep well? Did I eat well? Do I have, you know, other emotional baggage going on? Um, am I stressed out about something, you know, what, whatever it is. And anytime I failed when I was growing up, I would, you know, if I went and talked to my dad, he would listen. Now he would only listen to a point and then he would say, okay, enough's enough. And then he would ask me, did you do your best? And if I could honestly answer that question, um, then, then typically it was okay. The hard part was, was my own kind of self-deprecating way of thinking because I would say, well, my best could have been a little bit better. So I was, I was super hard on myself. And I don't think that my parents really in like created that. I think I created that for myself. Um, but I had a period of time 
where that didn't happen anymore. And then when I met my husband, um, he actually introduced me to Jocko Willink. And uh, you know how much I love, I love Jocko and Echelon Front. And the very first thing that I ever saw was Jocko's video. It's on YouTube. It's like two minutes long and it's called Good. Um, I now play it at the beginning of every single academic year for my students. Um, and basically what he does is he goes through and, and talks about ways that we fail, you know, didn't, um, you know, didn't get the equipment we wanted. Good. Didn't get the, you know, the, the raise. Good. You know, as PTs, our patient didn't get better. Good. I failed an exam. Good. I failed a practical. Good. There's always like, if you can say what he says at the end, if you can say good, it means that you're still alive. And your job at that point in time is to get up, dust off, recalibrate, re-engage and go out on the attack. Uh, thank you also to the class of, I think, 2018. Uh, they bought me a, a good mug. It is one of my favorite mugs. Um, I should have actually had it today, but I have my <laughs> M mug instead. Um, but I think that's part of where you make that shift to fail forward. If you can say good and you can really look back and figure out like, what did I do wrong? then, or, or not necessarily wrong. What could I do differently? That's what we do with our son. You know, when, when our, when our, our son's five, he messes up all the time. Uh, once he can calm down, we'll sit down briefly. Cause you can't talk for a long time to a five-year-old. And I'll just say, what do you think you could do different next time? And just that question gives him the opportunity to kind of think about, you know, Next time, maybe I will wear shoes on the stairs. He fell down the stairs the other day, like just slipped and slid down on his bottom. But, you know, things like that. And so as PTs, if our patients don't get better, is it a them problem or an us problem? Because there's two, there's two people in that relationship, right? You know, uh, as students, if I failed an exam, good. Okay. How could I do that differently? Did I go to office hours? Did I ask the right questions? What were my study habits like? You know, was I studying with, you know, freaking Shit's Creek on, which is one of the best shows ever, um, you know, or, or was I studying with people and that's not a good way for me to study. Um, I love it when students come in and they're like, yeah, I rewrite my notes. And I'm like, sweet Jesus, why? Like, <laughs> like such a time suck. Let's talk about that. You know, so if you can say good then you have the ability to self-reflect and you have the opportunity to learn something. If you can't say good, then like we've got a bigger issue. No, I completely agree. And um, I love that you bring up that specific little mini speech or mini podcast clip from Jocko there. It's um, one I'm very familiar with myself. And I found that it it's become easier to say the word good after some type of failure coming up short. However, there's sometimes where situations happen that yeah. you just kind of look at and there's a lot of denial and anger that goes on. And it's mm -hmm. very difficult to find the brighter side of gray in certain yeah. situations. Um, you know, give an example, um, a patient I'd been working with for a long time came in just a few days ago and uh, had an acute injury. Uh, sent that individual to uh, someone I know at a walk-in clinic 
who unfortunately confirmed a fracture. Um, so keep in mind, this was someone who had battled for a long time just to get back to where they were. And unfortunately, now there's another hurdle uh, that was not foreseen, not expected, and it all just kind of happened within a 24-hour time span. It's very difficult to stop mm -hmm. and look at a situation like that and say the word good. It's very difficult to find that. Absolutely. But somewhere deep down there, there, there is something good that will come out of it. And it's kind of hard to find that at first when you're restricted from doing the activities that you love for a period of time and your whole way of life and lifestyle gets interrupted by something, you know, that just up and happens like that, that you had no time to prepare for, not, you know, you didn't even see it coming. Uh, it really shocks the system. Um, and I know that you have <laughs> some similar um, situations like that um, where things yeah. just sort of hit you one day for lack of a better way to put it. Literally, I see yeah. where you're getting with this. <laughs> <laughs> so how were yeah. you able to you know, <laughs> go from alpha savage Megan freaking yeah. roadie who deadlifts and power cleans more than even I can uh, to all of a sudden you see an MRI result and uh -huh. you're like, I think I'm going to need to go under the knife here. Yeah. Um, oh, well, it was really freaking hard. Um, so I guess I'll start at the beginning. Um, yeah. we, we had just come home. We'd gone to see my parents out in Colorado for Christmas and decided to stay a little bit longer. Um, I had a ton of PTO. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to take the first week in January off and just kind of slow roll my way, you know, coming back to campus. And we had left our dog, um, at my in-laws house and my husband was, he's a uh, air national guard. And so we came home and then two days later he had to go on guard duty. So my son and I were in the car, um, on our way to go pick up the dog after school. And it was, um, this is my first winter in New Hampshire. Now, mind you, I have driven in snow before, so this is not an inept woman driving in snow. Um, this is shit New England roads. Um, and we lost control of our car and crossed into oncoming traffic and there was a car coming down down the hill going pretty fast. Um, and they hit the, really, I don't know, it was like 45 degrees off being a head on collision at probably about 35, 40 miles an hour. Um, spun our car around, uh, airbags deployed. And like the minute I realized I could not control my car anymore, I just said, Lord, I don't care what happens to me. I need you to keep my son safe. That's all I care about. And uh, asking you shall receive. <laughs> um, you know, airbags deployed. I think it freaked him out a little bit. Um, I looked back to check once we, once everything had stopped, he was fine. Um, he, he cried a little bit. I think he was scared. Um, and then I got out. I said, okay, I want you to stay in the car. And I got out uh, ever the healthcare provider <laughs> to make sure the other guy was okay. Um, he was fine. And so then I went to go get my son out of the car and I couldn't open the door except for my door that was already open. So then I started to panic a little bit because the car had totally shut down. It was smoking everywhere. And I was like, oh my God, my car's going to explode and my kid's in it. Um, so I had him unbuckle, crawl around to the front, got him out of the car. Um, another person had pulled over in a pickup truck and it was cold. And I said, can I put my son in your truck where it's warm? 
so that I can get, you know, his coat and stuff. And so he went and sat in this guy's truck, like these people that just kept, came out of nowhere. I mean, there was so much, God was everywhere when this was happening. <laughs> like, that's just kind of the way it was. So I called my husband um, and I said, you know what, honey, I'm, I'm fine. I don't want you to know I'm fine, but I totaled our car. I'm pretty sure. And so I told him what happened and he's a firefighter EMT. He said, you need to call an ambulance. I was like, no, I don't. I'm fine. Um, and he said, no, you like, it was absolutely an adrenaline trauma response. And he was like, you need to call. So called, went to the hospital. Um, I had, by the time I got to the hospital, I realized how out of it I was. And so I had a pretty severe concussion. Um, but they didn't take any films of my neck. And I was too out of it to like spout off the Canadian C-spine rules, which I knew I met all the criteria. Um, and my friend was there, she works in IT, so she didn't know what to say. And, you know, my son's playing with rubber gloves that are inflated like balloons. And then they sent me home. And, um, so the next day, a friend of mine came over who is a PT and I was like, you know, my neck feels super stiff. Can you just do some soft tissue? And so I kind of told her a little bit about it. And she said, you know what? I love you. I'm not touching your neck. Like you need to go to the, you need to go get films. So I went to urgent care in the little town that we live in, uh, freaked them out because I was concussed. So I laid down on the lobby floor and just fell asleep while I waited for four hours uh, to get imaging. Wow. Yeah. Um, finally got, got taken back, got imaging and I was fully expecting them to be like, you're fine. You know, you just got your bell rung a little bit. Your neck's going to be a little sore, you know, go do some PT and you know, you'll be good to go. And the guy comes, uh, the, the doc comes back in and he said, and he's got a Philadelphia collar with him. And I was like, what the fuck is that for? <laughs> I don't need that. And, uh, he pulled up my x-ray and my C6 was subluxed posterior on C7. And I was like, okay, well that doesn't look good. And he said, yeah, it doesn't look good at all. You need to go get an MRI. Um, well, I live in rural New Hampshire and it was eight o'clock at night and there was no MRI open. And so he said, you know, we can transport you to the hospital and you can spend the night and get an MRI first thing in the morning. Uh, and I was like, no, I'm not spending the night in a hospital to wait for an MRI. Uh, so I, uh, left against medical advice and it with my cute little Philly collar and went home and my friend was with our son. She absolutely saved us that weekend. Uh, I went home and I cried and I had a glass of wine and I took off my Philly collar and I went to sleep, uh, because I was, I was just in denial, like totally in denial. Um, so the next day I went to the ER, had my MRI, um, Turns out it was okay for me to take my Philly collar off, which was good because I'd already done it. Um, but I had a complete anterior disc explosion. So C5, 6 disc um, had completely blown out anteriorly to both sides. And um, so they referred me to neuro. And so I, a couple of days later, I walked into the neurosurgeon's office and he did a, you know, just a routine neuro exam and then pulled up my images. And he was like, why don't you try PT? And I looked at him and I said, you know, I'm not a neurosurgeon, but I know imaging and that doesn't look good. And he said, yeah, no, it doesn't. Uh, but I want you to try some PT for about a month. 
So no lifting, no pull-ups, no running, no jumping, um, pretty much no nothing except walking. And so then I went to PT, I had a great physical therapist. Um, she did a lot of myofascial work um, and it just kept getting worse. My right arm, I felt like numb, tingly and this sensation of cold running water going up and down my arm, which in 16 years of being a physical therapist, I had never heard anybody describe that before. And I was like, what the hell is this? And it was just my right arm. And over the course of four weeks, um, it got so bad. I couldn't even push open a heavy door. I couldn't, I couldn't hug anybody. If I hugged someone, my, my right arm would just shake. Um, it was hard to pick up my son. And so I went back to the neurosurgeon and he was like, yeah, I, I think, I think you're a good candidate for a disc replacement. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go get a second opinion. So I went down to Boston and went to Brigham, um, and found, managed to find the guy who was part of the initial, clinical trial about 10 years ago that got this disc FDA approved and he's on staff, um, at Harvard medical school. And I was like, you know, and he's the chief of neurosurgery at Brigham. And so I thought, okay, if somebody decided that you can teach at Harvard and you're the chief of neurosurgery, then I guess I'll let you cut on me. Um, and, and, oh, by the way, you've got like 17 publications in PubMed on this. Um, so March 1st, I had, I had surgery. Um, they went in, did an anterior approach. Um, I have an M6 cervical disc. So, um, it's, it's pretty cool. Like the, the, the actual disc is made out of silicone and the end plates are like titanium, but the, the top of them are like titanium Velcro. So there's no, like drilling or anything like that into the spine above and below it just like that grittiness kind of sits on the vertebral body of the segments above and below and then over time because our bodies are amazing um you kind of build up that new bone and then you've got a nice new disc so um i am let's see today's monday may 8th i am about a little over two months out um so yeah that's and that and, happened <laughs> and you're doing awfully well for being over two months out at this point from what I've heard yeah um you know the first I think honestly like from the time of injury I mean it was it was two solid months from you know January 6th when I was injured to March 1st uh, before I had surgery the worst part of it was my concussion um it was my seventh that I've had and I don't I don't remember no pun intended. I don't, rem I don't remember the other ones being so bad. Uh, but I had like crazy mood swings. I was super irritable. I couldn't, I feel really bad for my students and my faculty because any decision that I made during the month of January and February, I don't actually really remember a lot of it. Um, and then just, you know, like you said, kind of what led us into this, not being able to do what I wanted to do. Like I couldn't do anything. I was relegated to walking and the Peloton and, you know, no, I'm not bagging on Peloton because that shit can get really hard too. But, you know, my concussion really limited what I could do. If I got my heart rate above like 130, my head was just pounding. Um, and it was like that for six weeks. Um, so yeah. And then the first month after surgery, um, I couldn't lift anything over 10 pounds. I wasn't supposed to bend over. Um, I was supposed to just walk. And so then when I went back after that first month and they said, you know, you can kind of kind of do whatever you want within reason, like let your symptoms really guide you. 
Um, I tried the next day, actually, I was like, okay, I'm going to squat. And so I <laughs> loaded up a bar and was squatting. I mean, I was only squatting like 145, but it felt good. Like I, I was like, okay, this is good. I feel, you know, like I could start moving again, like move that needle 1% each day. Um, and now I'm, you know, last week I did pull-ups and a workout for the first time. Um, I am doing really light snatching, really light clean and jerks. Um, I'm able to squat heavy again, deadlift heavy. My bench is coming back. So like things are, are coming back, but that, that period of time. And I realize it's not that long. Like we're talking five months, you know, really from injury to today, but it felt like forever. And so it gave me a whole new perspective for people who have, you know, think about like our ACLs, like that's a year long process, really, if you do it right. Um, it's really hard when that happens. Cause yeah, you have plans. Like we all have plans. I actually, um, I had, I've been working with Invictus, um, out of San Diego for a couple of years now. And my coach and I had just kind of revamped what my training was going to be like this year. And the day before my accident, I had just got my new training cycle from him. So I was like super jazzed to do that. And then like literally everything stopped. Um, I think the biggest thing that I learned from this though, I had, um, my strength saved my life. Um, I had a pretty significant bruise on my spinal cord and had a slight case of posterior cord syndrome. Um, and if I had not the strength that I have, I would probably have a C5 spinal cord injury. Um, so yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> I, I would say so. I mean, first, Megan, thank you so much for your transparency and openness and honesty with everything, because I realize these things can be a little bit difficult to talk about and relive uh from time to time um and you know some of that is normal um you know earlier today i had someone post-op acl who was day one acceleration deceleration and believe it or not he wasn't quite as quick as he thought he was going to be and that can be a frustrating time um you know completely different scenario but just illustrating the point that Sometimes we get to that point where it's four months, five months, what, however far out from, you know, surgical date or injury date, and we still aren't there yet. And that's okay. And it's okay to be frustrated or caught off guard or even sad at times based on some of those things. And I think that, you know, in general, providers do not do a good enough job of validating those feelings uh, that develop after something that occurs like that. Um, because, you know, I myself, knock on wood, I've never experienced what you have. I've never experienced what many of my patients have. And uh, fingers crossed, I'm trying to keep it that way, um, <laughs> at least for right now. Um, you know, the second piece I'll uh, kind of throw in there as well is, you know, you mentioned that you were able to focus on what you can do. Mm -hmm. And that might not have been easy to do in itself because I know you're a barbell junkie. And oh I know God. things like- yes. I know things like a Peloton bike or, you know, TRX straps or whatever that way are nowhere near as attractive to you as the barbell. No, uh, my barbell is, is like, it's beautiful. Like that's my girl, you, you know, you'd be the kind of person to carry your own into a commercial gym if you had to. 
I have done that before, actually. I have done that. Yes. That's too funny. Um, and you know, to your point too about you know strength saving your life. You know, I bring up the mental emotional side as well because I realize that can be a very difficult thing to process in itself. Like if I didn't do what I had done for the past you know few decades. I would be living a completely different life right this second. And that that can be very difficult to process. But it also reiterates that point that we talked about very early on in here, in that the things that you do day by day might make 1% of a difference. Right. And you might not ever get to see what that 1% of a difference looks like. Or maybe you do. And that 1% ends up saving your life. Um, so it, it's important to going back to what we talked about earlier, develop those skills and habits. Um, you know, I've heard people coin the term high performance habits, if you will, things like exercise, sleeping right, taking care of yourself, taking care of those around you, developing yourself personally in all facets, because those things long-term over time repeated end up compounding into something that can have just an intangible effect overall on your life. I think they do. And I also, I think in the, in, in the spirit of, of full transparency, um, I have to admit, I have a temper. Like I, I, I have always had a temper and that concussion magnified my temper so much. And it, it not only magnified my temper, but it also, I was very, very depressed. Um, and I didn't, I didn't want to take anything. Like I'm trying, I'm literally trying to let my brain heal. And I felt, I've, I don't know that I've ever felt so not myself and my poor husband, <laughs> that man loves me so much because I gave him every single reason during that time period to just walk away. Like it did not take much to piss me off. I would let everybody know about it. My poor son, like he saw me completely fly off the handle. And I think that, and, and I share that because one, I want people to know that I think rage against the machine said your anger is a gift and they're, they're right. It's, it's how you display it. That's the hard part. And what that period taught me was that if I have this support system, which I do with my friends and my husband, before I started to feel like things were really coming off the rails, I could have gone to him and said, like, I don't know what's going on. I just know that I don't feel good. And he would have helped me. But again, to go back to what we talked about at the beginning, I, I, I went it's so easy to slide back into old habits because they're comfortable. And my old habit of being perfect, right. And trying to be like this perfect wife and perfect mom. And, you know, I'm Damon, I'm going to heal perfectly, you know, made me get really, really hard on myself. And then I would get really depressed because I couldn't do what I wanted to do. And then I would get really angry and then I would take it out on my family. And, and it didn't take much to set me off. And it was only when he and I sat down and he was like, look, you, you, like, you can't do this. You can't get so angry with me that you're like threatening to rip down the Christmas tree and telling me to pack my shit and get the fuck out of the house because you don't feel good. Like I'm here to help you. 
And that vulnerability and like really leaning into that discomfort helped get me through some of that. So then I could go to him and I could say, I feel really terrible. I did a Peloton and I feel like I'm going to throw up because I got my heart rate up too high or you know, I'm sick of walking. I want, I, I miss my barbell. I miss the gym. Like I miss my people. Um, and then leading up to my surgery, I was terrified. Like they're going to literally cut my neck open and move vital things out of the way and put this new disc in me. Like it was the ultimate test in letting go because I, I'm not a neurosurgeon. I don't know how to do this. I don't even know how to do the rehab for it because there's nothing out there. So I I had no choice but to let go and let people around me help. And so I think when we're working with patients, especially for PTs who've never been injured, like again, fingers crossed and God bless you that, that you haven't been, you have to really try to empathize and understand your patients and make sure that you are part of that support system. You know, like with the guy you had this morning that, you know, he's doing acceleration, deceleration. He probably, and he knew, he probably knew driving to PT this morning that he was going to work on that. And he's like, hell yeah, I'm going to crush this. And then he gets in and he's like, oh shit, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. It, it's you funny know, how that, that goes. Um, and to your point too, I mean, ultimately your locus of control was completely disrupted. One day you could do whatever the heck you wanted. You could lift, you could pick up your son, you could hug people, you can do anything. Um, And then the next day that's completely gone. Um, So ultimately finding ways to give you control back. It might not be total control. Here's the keys, take off and run. Um, But any little thing you can do to restore control of someone's life, I think is essential. You also brought up a great point of how you felt like it's very easy to slip back into past habits or past things. Um, Mastin Kip calls it a survival pattern. And I love the term. It's something that we use to keep us alive and get through difficult times. However, just because we're surviving does not mean that we are thriving. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that is so difficult in the moment to be aware of those things that we're doing. You mentioned it yourself. You know, it's very you, you had, I think you used the term a bit of a temper uh, for a long period of time, um, you know, and it's very difficult to sometimes be in the moment and step back from a situation and understand what you're doing, what's going on around you. Um, and I, I think that over time, cultivating the ability to do that is a great skill for anyone, but it doesn't change the fact that it's almost next to impossible to do it every time, Right. We always have to be willing to accept the fact that we're not going to be perfect at our ability to step back, assess our situation, assess our emotions, and how we're acting as a result of them. It's uh, it's so difficult to do. Um, and then going a step further, you know, in your case as well, I, I just I can't help but think about how many other people may may not be living the exact same thing that you're describing right now but have gone through something similar. And yet, you know, no one recognizes it. I mean, there was uh, that same year I met you when I was in Arizona, there was another girl I met out there. We had her on the podcast, actually, Emily White. Um, She was in a freak four-wheeler accident up in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona, and in the middle of COVID nonetheless. 
um, and crushed her leg, had like five or six surgeries, ended up eventually choosing herself at 20 years old in a hospital alone in the middle of COVID because no outside visitors uh, to have her leg amputated. And then less than a year later, returned to the college softball diamond, uh, you know, with a blade uh, for a leg. Like, it's just amazing to me how many stories like this are out there of people who have really gone through hell and back and yet continue to strive through adversity and continue to push forward on the day to day, um, you know, such as yourself here. And I think that at the end of the day, stories like yours need to be told more, need to be shared more, need to be spotlighted more because this stuff is not getting enough attention. And unfortunately, there's there's too much trauma going around and not enough people talking about the long term implications of it. I think that um, trauma, it's I, I I love and I hate the word, you know, like people because it, it can be it can be so used so poorly where, you know, somebody, their Starbucks order gets messed up and they're like, oh, I was traumatized because I didn't get the right coffee this morning. Well, actually, you know what? You weren't traumatized. You were inconvenienced. But at the same time, trauma is the person's perspective of what happened. And so, you know, what happened to like, think about my son and I, my son was in the same car that I was in. And he had no problem getting back into a car the next day. I had to go pick up the rental car and I was like, oh my God, I don't want to drive. So it's all about your perception of the event. But I think that one thing, hopefully we're starting to do better as healthcare providers. Um, I know our program does this. I think a lot of other programs have psychosocial components to their program. Every single person who comes to see us because we haven't really advanced our profession to such a point where people are coming to see us preventatively like they would their dentist. Perhaps that's another podcast. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But when people come to see us, they're coming to see us because they're hurt. Something is hurting. And pain is actually an emotion. Like there is some, some physiology associated with pain, but the perception of pain is an emotion, just like love or passion or hatred or anger. It's all this, it's all emotional. What pain does though, is that it takes us out of the present and into that survival mode that you were just talking about. And so one of the things that I think really was able to help me in this process um, is something called somatic experiencing. So I'm actually in the middle of my somatic experiencing um, training. I'm in my second year and it's a trauma intervention that was developed by Peter Levine. And it helps, it, it gives the person tools to help themselves. So you end up, and I think it's really helpful for PTs because you're teaching patients how to track things that they're feeling in their body and around them. And so when we find ourselves in this kind of, you know, slipping back into an old pattern, one of the things that I do, I can figure out, I know where in my body I start to feel something when that happens. So I end up getting this, like, I call it my column. So I'll have this area from like my sternum to to my belly button that feels like, a tower or a column of just tightness. 
And when I feel that, my job is to immediately orient myself to my surroundings. And when we stop and we can orient ourselves to our surroundings, it brings us into the present moment. And it might be something as silly as like right now, I'm you know sitting in this little part of our breakfast nook kitchen area. So if I'm stressing out, I can look around and I can be like, okay, coffee cup, chair, coffee pot, bananas. And that just, get, and I'm just pointing things out around me and that gets me into the present moment. And then I can come back into my body and come back into my breath and my nervous system will start to calm down. Right. I love that. Kind of like we talked about before, being able to take a breath, step back from a situation and become aware of the situation around you and what's happening. Um, and again, that's a very difficult thing to do. But if you develop the ability to do it, I would imagine it helps you uh, quite a bit, for lack of a better way to put it. It does. And it's, and, and it's not perfect. Um, there are times that... I can't catch it in time. And that's when I lose my temper. But if I catch it in time and if I can tell, you know, if, if I'm at home and I can tell my husband, you know what, I'm, I need a minute. I can just remove myself from the conversation, remove myself from the room, go get calm and then come. And, and then I'm like, like, I'm back online. I can actually make sense and, and hear what somebody's trying to tell me. And, you know, I, I actually do the same thing with our son, you know, this weekend, my husband was gone um, on drill again, and it was just my son and I, and there were a couple moments where he was unglued. And my job as a parent is to stay calm and be supportive for my child when they're having a hard time. And I can't do that all the time. And so sometimes I have to just tell him like, I love you. I need to go take a break. I will be right back. And I always come back and then we can, you know, we can kind of regulate one another. You have to be able to communicate with people when you're coming unglued and before you walk away. If you can do that, if you can catch that, then the rest just takes practice. Again, you just move the needle 1% every day. And then, you know, over the, over a period of time, you've got this new habit uh, and it's not perfect. No, like it will never <laughs> to go back to perfection. It will never be perfect. But if I'm, if I'm really, if I focus every day on how to do that, then I've made a little bit of a difference. I completely agree. And, you know, your 1% continues to add up for you right now, Megan, as you mentioned, you're already back to squatting and deadlifting. And before you know it, you'll be competing again uh, in CrossFit, which, um, you know, I'm excited to see that happen for you. And I'm excited to see, you know, this one piece of your life. And, you know, relatively speaking, it ends up becoming a small piece when you look at the past 42, 43 years. Yeah. So I'm interested <laughs> to see uh, what kind of impact this has for you moving forward, because I have a feeling that, you know, from what I know about you, you're really just getting started here. Uh, and next thing you know, you could be, you know, the first ever uh, female to win a CrossFit competition after a neck surgery or something along those lines is, you know, you ultimately take what has happened to you and find a way to work it into the greater good of your life. And, um, you know, you're, you're not someone who settles for what has happened to you, you choose to become what you want to become as a result of it. And I think that's something we can all kind of reflect on and take away for our own lives. Um, because as you mentioned, sometimes we get these minor little daily hiccups and inconveniences that might feel a little more traumatic than they actually are, that right. in the grand scheme of things, do not shake our world up. 
um, you know, significantly for lack of a better way to put it. I know we're kind of running short on time, uh, but is there any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks or anything else that you wanted to share today? Um, I guess I, I do want to say relative to competing in CrossFit again, um, I, I am retired. Uh, really? Yep. I am. I think that's a big, a big thing that I learned from this injury. And I had kind of thought about, thought about it before this happened anyway. Um, training for that took so much away from, from my family and from my life. And, you know, it, there were sometimes some, some weeks that I think I was training probably 25, 30 hours a week. Um, and it just was too much. Um, and it didn't leave anything for, for myself and it didn't leave anything for my family. And so what I realized is that I loved competing in CrossFit. I love Olympic lifting. Like I, I still get to do those things. If I want to do a local competition, you know, that's fine, but I don't get like today is the youngest my son will ever be. And I don't want to miss that. So I would rather pick him up early from school. Like I get up now and go to the gym early in the morning so that I've got the rest of the day. I would rather pick him up early from school and play with him outside or play a game or, you know, just let him kind of guide me. I would rather spend time with my husband. I I just, it really made me stop and think like, where are your priorities? And my priorities are with my family. And so, you know, I think, consistent reevaluation of what your why is would be my parting thoughts. If you're a student, if you're a physical therapist, if you're, you know, I think you've got people who are, are trainers and coaches and stuff that listen to your podcast too, at least once a month or once a quarter, just carve out some time and like get yourself outside, get your feet in the grass and really stop and think about what your why is. Cause it's okay for it to change. And that's when you know that the universe is calling you in the direction that you're supposed to go. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where I am. I'll still do CrossFit and, and lift cause I love how cool it feels to be strong. Um, but you know, my days of competing and letting that define me are done. You know, yeah. There's, there's a lot of other people who are way better at it than I am. <laughs> uh, I I can relate to you there. I mean, I can't even believe some of the stuff that you can still do, uh, Megan, because, you know, I myself, I never got into the Olympic lifting or that sort of thing. And things like the clean and the clean and jerk and all of those different things have always really impressed me. And it's not just your physical ability, but the way that you can take something like that, and then break it down into such simple terms to the level that anyone can understand it. I mean, I still remember some of the different things that you would explain. And I was just like, why the hell did I never think about it like that before? <laughs> um, so I really, really appreciate your time. And I really appreciate all the insight that you've shared and your overall journey. Um, you know, ultimately you grow through what you go through. Here's another cliche term. I'm full of them Absolutely. today. No, I love um, that one. But, one. you know, I, I think that your experience is very impactful and I just can't, you know, even begin to, you know, assume how many people you're going to impact just by sharing your own story and experience. And, you know, at the end of the day, that 1% thing we talked about earlier, that was all in reference to ourselves. 
but if we can just impact one person a day, mm -hmm. the effect that we can have on the world is just going to be exponentially more than anything we can ever uh, think of. So I really appreciate you, uh, your time and everything that you do, Megan. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was wonderful. Oh, and for people who want to find out more about you, where can they find you? Or, you know, 42, oh, 43, is that still the MySpace era or? Uh, you know, I did have a MySpace account. Uh, <laughs> I did. So I am actually on Instagram as it depends DPT these days. Um, I am in, in terms of, can I, can I change 1%? I'm trying to change the PT education worlds one, one person at a time. Um, so that's where you can find me. And then, uh, I also, you know, I had a, a, a long stint as a, a pelvic health therapist. So, um, I also have a website, um, called Fortis Matrem, F-O-R-T-I-S-M-A-T-R-E-M.com. Uh, and that is Latin for strong mother. Um, and then, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a PT student or if you want to go to PT school, um, and you want a pretty awesome program, check out Franklin Pierce university in New Hampshire. Got to <laughs> plug sure. my own program. Yeah. <laughs> we, we will, uh, we'll link to all of that below in the description too. So yeah. if you didn't quite catch it, you can just click it there. Megan, thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.